It was a cool, comfortable evening in the northeastern United States. As was the custom on Sunday nights, most Americans were huddled around their radios, tuned into a variety of programs ranging from comedy and news to dramas and music. It being the Great Depression, the public was hungry for any and all manner of escapist entertainment, anything to get their minds off the dire economic situation that the nation, as well as the rest of the world, had been plunged into nine years prior. In addition to the aforementioned crippling depression, several countries were embroiled in conflict. In Europe, Spain was caught in the throes of a violent and bloody civil war, while Nazi Germany looked to expand its sovereignty by threatening to invade its neighbors. Meanwhile, in the Far East, Japan had laid waste to China, and, like its future European ally, was beginning to look hungrily towards the rest of Asia for dominance. Such a shaky socio-political situation likely meant that another world war loomed on the horizon. But, with everything else going on, no one wished to give the matter any more thought. After all, 20 years had elapsed since the last great war, dubbed the War to End All Wars by then-President Woodrow Wilson. The idea of another catastrophic event such as that was more than the public could handle. In short, the late 1930s was a tense time for everyone. So imagine their surprise when, after turning the dial to surf through the various programs being offered that Sunday night, a special news bulletin broke through about a Martian invasion force that had landed somewhere in New Jersey. Americans up and down the eastern seaboard sat glued to their sets as they listened to the frantic reporter describe the chaos that was unfolding. Something about poison gas and a heat ray, weapons so terrible, frightening, and quite unlike anything humanity had ever seen or heard of before, were being used by squid-like creatures from outer space. Needless to say, the news flash caused an uproar, with listeners calling in to local news stations to learn more. Little did they know, however, that said bulletin was none other than a dramatic rendering of H.G. Wells's iconic science fiction novel, War of the Worlds. The culprit? A young film and theater actor named Orson Welles, no relation to H.G., and his troupe, known collectively as the Mercury Theater on the air. While radio dramas weren't uncommon at the time, what caused this particular performance to create such a stir? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to Episode 2 in a special spooktacular series throughout the month of October, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. For classic film buffs like yours truly, the name Orson Welles ought to ring a bell. After all, he's credited with writing and directing what is considered to be the greatest film of all time, Citizen Kane, 1941. And while it was this project, based on the life of newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst, that would launch him to international stardom, it was the infamous War of the Worlds broadcast that would earn him his reputation within the United States. Wells was a sort of theatrical everyman. He acted, wrote, and directed what Hollywood insiders would refer to as the triple threat. And while it was the aforementioned Citizen Kane that really put him in the spotlight, he had gained the experience of a seasoned entertainer well before his big-screen debut. Dubbed the boy genius by Broadway producer types, he had already established himself, by the age of 23, as a veteran stage actor, having done Shakespeare as well as the work of other British and American playwrights. In addition, he was also interested in comics and pulp magazines, the latter of which germinated into a radio adaptation of one of its most famous characters, the Shadow, which he originated and played on the air between 1937 and 1938. The program as a whole lasted until 1954. 
That same year, that is, 1937, Wells founded an independent repertory theater company in New York, known as the Mercury Theater. Aside from himself, the key players included such acting and old Hollywood legends as Joseph Cotton, Agnes Moorhead, Everett Sloan, and Norman Lloyd, among others. Though its stage productions were big successes and drew in the crowds, and therefore revenue, its most popular incarnation would be as the Mercury Theater on the air. Launched on July 11, 1938 through the Columbia Broadcasting System, or CBS for my American listeners, its aim was to present dramatic interpretations of classic works of literature live on the air, featuring the Mercury Theater's key players, as well as an orchestra conducted by renowned film composer Bernard Herrmann. The first episode, an adaptation of Bram Stoker's 1897 gothic novel Dracula, proved so successful that CBS picked up the program for an additional 21 episodes, which would run through December 4th that same year. By early October, with Halloween well on the way, Wells wanted to do something decidedly creepy and scary to mark the occasion. As the time slot had been moved from Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time to Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on September 11th, the Halloween episode, the 17th and the Mercury Theater on the Air's lineup, was due for October 30th, the final Sunday of the month. After going through several classics of horror and science fiction, Wells ultimately settled on H.G. Wells' frightening yet captivating 1898 novel, War of the Worlds, in which a Martian invasion force lands in rural England and proceeds to take over the planet. The first and most iconic book to follow the alien invasion premise, Orson Welles immediately knew he wanted to present the story in the form of a simulated live newscast that seemingly described the events of the novel as they were happening. The first two-thirds of the hour-long program would retell key points in the novel, presenting them as news flashes interrupting programs of dance music, a common practice for breaking news in those days. As Wells later recounted, quote, I had conceived the idea of doing a radio broadcast in such a manner that a crisis would actually seem to be happening, and would be broadcast in such a dramatized form as to appear to be a real event taking place at that time, rather than a mere radio play. Boy genius indeed. No one on the American airwaves had ever dared to dream up such a production before. But, when taking international radio into consideration, he was by no means the first. Wells later admitted that he had been inspired by two previous fake broadcasts, quote-unquote, on British and Australian radio respectively. The first was Ronald Knox's Broadcasting the Barricades, an incendiary program from 1926 in which Knox had vividly described a fictitious mass riot overtaking London. The other was a drama that had aired a year later in 1927 on Adelaide's 5CL radio station in Australia that described an invasion force of otherworldly beings. But the inspirations and influences on the Mercury Theatre on the Air's production of War of the Worlds ran deep. Having worked on several news programs and radio plays through CBS prior to the Mercury Theater's move to the airwaves, Orson Welles brought his previous work experience with him, namely in terms of the production's proposed simulated newsflash format. For instance, one of the biggest programs on CBS's lineup was a documentary news show known as The March of Time, of which Welles was a regular member of its cast. This program, which delivered news dramatically as if performed in a radio play, served as one of the biggest inspirations for War of the Worlds. Another was a drama known as Air Raid, which had starred Mercury Theater's own Ray Collins and was presented as an intense as-it-happens listening experience. In addition, Wells had used the newscast format before in the Mercury Theater on the Air's production of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, which had aired on September 11th that year. Just days away from the October 30th premiere date, Wells discussed the simulated newsflash idea with the program's producer and associate producer, John Houseman and Paul Stewart, respectively. So it was that they set to work acquiring the radio rights to War of the Worlds, and chose playwright and screenwriter Howard Koch on October 24th to adapt it. But the following night, just 36 hours before rehearsals were due to begin, Koch phoned Houseman in distress. 
He couldn't make War of the Worlds interesting or credible as a radio play, he told the producer, a sentiment that was echoed by his own secretary, Anne Froelich. Houseman, however, reassured him. Keep adapting the H.G. Wells fantasy, he told Koch, and quickly made his way over to assist the two throughout the night. The following evening, the first draft was complete, just in time for rehearsals to start the next day. Though adapted from H.G. Wells's original novel, some necessary changes had to be made in order to make the story more relevant to the Times and its target audience. As previously stated, the invasion in the book begins in rural England in the late 19th century, and soon advances to London before enveloping the entire world. As the production was intended for an American audience, namely those living in the northeastern United States, the setting was updated to then-contemporary times, that is, the late 1930s, and was switched to a farm in the unincorporated community of Grover's Mill in the West Windsor Township in Mercer County, New Jersey. From there, the Martian invasion force would make its way to New York, Boston, and other metropolitan areas along the eastern seaboard. All these changes were made on October 27th, the Thursday before the broadcast, following a cast reading of the script. On top of that, associate producer Paul Stewart made an acetate recording without music or sound effects and gave it to Orson Welles, who couldn't attend said rehearsal because he was simultaneously rehearsing a stage production for the Mercury Theatre, who listened to it in his hotel room at the St. Regis Hotel that evening. But, according to him, it was no good, namely because it was lacking news bulletins and eyewitness accounts, key elements that, he stressed, would create a sense of urgency and excitement. Frustrated but determined, Hausman, Koch, Froelich, and Stewart spent the night reworking the script, adding even more news bulletins as well as incorporating the names of real people and places whenever possible to make it seem all the more true to life. By Friday afternoon, the script was complete and was given to CBS's executive producer, Davidson Taylor, for review. His consensus? It was, quote-unquote, too credible. So credible, in fact, that its realism needed to be toned down. As such, some 28 names, real places that the scriptwriters had inserted into the story, had to be changed, namely for legal purposes. The names were changed, and on Saturday, the day before the episode's premiere, Stewart rehearsed the program with the sound effects team. At last, the day had arrived. In the morning hours of October 30th, the program's orchestra, as well as its conductor, renowned film composer Bernard Herrmann, arrived at the CBS radio studio on Madison Avenue in Manhattan and met with Orson Welles, who had assumed control over the episode's production, to discuss music cues as well as orchestrations. Welles's goal was for the music to play for unbearably long stretches of time throughout the episode in the hopes of emulating a music program that was due to be interrupted with the breaking news of the Martian invasion. The pieces used were works by composers Frédéric Chopin and Claude Debussy, beautiful, seemingly calming pieces of music, but, quote, whose effects would become increasingly sinister, Hausman later recalled, a thin band of suspense stretched almost beyond endurance, unquote. The actors, too, had enthusiastically, and with much dedication, prepared for their respective roles. Frank Redick, for instance, who would be playing the part of reporter Carl Phillips, had gone through CBS's archives to listen to the recording of journalist Herbert Morrison's initial broadcast of the Hindenburg disaster a year and a half prior. As Redick would later recollect, he had listened to the famed Oh, the Humanity broadcast, quote, over and over, unquote, until he had gotten the inflection and emotion down pat. Wells, too, ever the serious actor, had himself visited the CBS archives to listen to the aforementioned air raid program once more so as to nail the intended urgent breaking news feel for which he was aiming. The dress rehearsal was set for 6 p.m. local, that is, Eastern Time, and by 9 p.m. Eastern Time, the program was underway. It began, as all radio programs did in those days, with the name of the company mounting the production, and had, in fact, stated quite clearly for those who had been tuned in from the start that it was to be a dramatic adaptation of H.G. Wells's classic science fiction novel.
From there, Orson Welles himself launched into a prologue of sorts, taken, albeit updated for contemporary times, from the book's opening words. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied by intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarding this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drawing their plans against us. Talk about setting the scene. In addition, the story was set in the immediate future, the following year, in fact, 1939. By then, according to Wells's narration, quote, business was better, the war scare was over, more men were back at work, sales were picking up, unquote. Such was the genius of the writers as well as Orson Welles himself. To add to the frightening atmosphere of the story, they fed immediately into the hopes and concerns of the average listener at the time. As previously stated, the world of the late 1930s was marred with concerns over the Depression, which, by the time of the War of the World's premiere, had just entered its ninth year, as well as mounting tensions throughout the world, which very well could lead to another global conflict, much like the one that had ended two decades earlier. It was this mental and emotional backdrop that set the stage for the ensuing panic the broadcast would incite. Following this gripping introduction was a simulated music program featuring the fictitious Ramon Raqueo and his orchestra. A weather bulletin reported that the evening was clear with moonlit skies gracing the northeastern United States. A few minutes on, however, the first signs of trouble broke in. Reports of strange flashes that could be seen on the surface of Mars had been reported by various astronomers of the region. The mic was turned over to reporter Carl Phillips, played by Frank Redick, who in turn interviewed a Princeton University-based professor of astronomy named Richard Pearson, played by Wells himself, the latter of whom dismissed the likelihood of there being any life on the Red Planet. Thus the music continued, but by now, those who had been channel-surfing on their radios sat and listened intently for further details, unaware that the program was, in fact, a dramatization. A few tense moments later, the music program was interrupted yet again when reports of a meteorite landing on a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey broke in. Phillips and Pearson had been dispatched to the site from nearby Princeton, and no sooner had they arrived did Phillips describe the chaotic scene. Upon closer inspection, said meteorite was revealed to be a cylindrical object, one that neither the crowd that had gathered nor Pearson himself could explain or identify. The professor was quick to add, however, that the cylinder appeared to be made of, quote, an extraterrestrial metal, unquote. Shortly thereafter, the object was unscrewed from inside, and Phillips, horrified, told listeners of the horrifying tentacled monsters within it. Police officers called to the site cautiously approached, waving a white flag of truce, but no sooner had they done so were they incinerated by an insidious device that Phillips dubbed a heat ray. Phillips's shout about incoming flames were cut off mid-sentence, and, after a moment of dead silence, an announcer explained that the broadcast had been cut short due to technical difficulties. By now, those listeners who had haphazardly stumbled upon the program in the middle of the broadcast were in a panic. Reports began flooding into police stations throughout the Northeast of various sightings of Martians in several towns and rural areas, inundating phone lines as a result. Despite the ensuing chaos, some still stuck to their radios, listening intently as the program continued. After Phillips's line went dead, regular programming returned with reports of a civilian death toll, unknowingly adding fuel to the flames of mass hysteria that were already taking place in the real world. A frantic Pearson returned to the mic, making speculations about Martian technology and its capabilities. Soon, the New Jersey State Militia declared martial law and began attacking both the cylinder and the beings within it. One of the captains cut in to report that their efforts against the Martian forces were succeeding, only to be stopped short moments later when a tripod-like war machine emerged from the impact site and began attacking the militia, obliterating it in the process. 
Emergency response news flashes began cutting in as well, reporting on damage sustained to bridges, railroads, and highways at the hands of the tripods. It wasn't long before the Secretary of the Interior, played by Kenny Delmar, addressed the nation, urging the public to remain calm and asking them to pray for victory over the otherworldly invasion force. But things quickly escalated. A fleet of tripods soon made their way to Newark, a stone's throw away from New York. A field artillery battery as well as a flying squadron were dispatched from the nearby Wachung Mountains and Langham Airfield, respectively. Though the field artillery managed to halt one of the Martian war machines in its tracks, the rest of the battery were obliterated by the heat ray. The planes, too, fared little better, with one of the pilots crashing into the tripods in a last-ditch effort at a suicide attack. Finally, after several failed attempts to quell the invasion force, a fleet of, quote, five great machines, unquote, waded across the Hudson River to New York, where people dove into the East River and off buildings in Times Square like flies. In a final newsflash, a reporter frantically broke in to report that several such cylinders had fallen from the sky throughout the country and world, and that the poison gas employed by the Martians was inundating the studio from where he was reporting. Isn't there anyone on the air, he implores, succumbing to the lethal vapors. Isn't there... anyone... Right on cue, just as fear and panic were gripping the entirety of the eastern seaboard, CBS announcer Dan Seymour cut in with a decidedly happier and peppier, quote, You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission, unquote. Those who had been listening from the start sat enthralled as they took in the second half of the program, which explained how the Martians had ultimately been thwarted by, quote, that most humble of creatures, bacteria, unquote, to which humanity had long ago grown immune, while their extraterrestrial adversaries had no natural defense. The episode's conclusion, made to appear like Pearson's recollections of the event, was nothing short of brilliant. Following the program's conclusion, Orson Welles and his associates had been informed of the mass hysteria that had resulted during the broadcast. Amused yet horrified by this, Wells took to the air just minutes after the episode ended to reassure the public. It had, in fact, been a Halloween concoction, he told his listeners, the equivalent of dressing up in a sheet, jumping out of a bush, and saying boo. Despite popular mythology and urban legend, which dictates that Wells had been prompted by CBS's executives to issue the statement following the panic, he made the statement of his own accord, and was actually initially swayed by his superiors on the grounds that they feared legal retribution. Luckily, however, no such action was ever taken, but immediately following the broadcast, the studio was swarmed with phone calls from all over the country, including the irate mayor of a Midwestern town, who phoned producer Houseman to inform him that his constituents were up in arms over a broadcast they'd heard about an alien invasion force in the Northeast. In addition, the studio entrance was blocked by hundreds of reporters and ordinary civilians who wished to inquire as to the veracity of the initial reports. Outside the studio, police sirens could be heard all over Manhattan, responding to calls of Martians advancing on the city. The following day, October 31st, Halloween, Wells was called to a press conference at CBS proper, where he issued a statement saying that he had no idea the broadcast would be interpreted as fact. After all, he and his fellow actors had done 16 such episodes prior to the War of the Worlds broadcast, and those had not been met with any fear or hysteria. Regardless, he apologized, but many, himself included, have gone on to say that the War of the Worlds episode of the Mercury Theater on the Air was one of his primary achievements for its acting as well as the rawness of its execution. Indeed, along with initial reports on the Hindenburg disaster and baseball legend Lou Gehrig's luckiest man speech, the War of the Worlds program is considered among the most famous and greatest of radio broadcasts. Which brings us back to our initial question. 
What caused this particular performance to create such a stir? As I mentioned a couple times throughout the episode, the world of the late 1930s was extremely volatile, to say the least. As news of mounting tensions between several world powers escalated, there was a considerable amount of fear that another world war could break out any day. Of course, it would take another year for the conflict now known as World War II to begin, and another three years before the United States became directly involved in it. But the seeds of concern had, by 1938, been planted in the hearts and minds of most Americans. As far-fetched as an alien invasion seems to our contemporary mindset, back then, any news, no matter how outlandish, could signal impending doom and despair. As such, the public ate it up simply because, deep down, they were convinced that anything in the new and frightening world in which they were living was possible. After all, the evils of fascism and militarism had emerged in Europe and the Far East in the years following the Great War, that is, World War I. If such a vicious regime could so easily come into being, what other horrors could befall humanity? In short, the War of the Worlds broadcast is a fascinating glimpse into the human psyche, particularly on a grand scale. It reveals how impressionable the collective consciousness is, and how, even as thinking, reasoning creatures, we can still be relatively easily swayed into believing something that isn't necessarily, or even at all, true. Mass hysteria is a fascinating concept in that we revert to our most base animal instincts in which to protect ourselves from any and all threats. But we need only take a moment to step back and assess the situation before launching into full-blown panic. Of course, this is easier said than done, but if any event from history should serve as a reminder, the War of the Worlds broadcast is the perfect example. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed these two spooktacular episodes so far. There are more to come, so stay tuned. Remember, if you like what you hear and wish to support me to ensure future content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. There are three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Listening and sharing help as well, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Join me again next week as we continue to celebrate October with another creepy episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. <laughs>